having said that, gushing over how great things are, let's go to the faces of sin. It's a weird transition, isn't it? But as Pastor Ryan's been saying for the past few weeks, don't be scared of that title. It's really not as negative as you think. We're calling it that because in one sense, what we're doing every week is looking at the faces of different people in the Bible, just looking at their unique stories and specifically their struggles with sin. But, but what we're finding is that as we look at those stories, sin itself is almost like a separate character in the story. So we're also seeing these different faces of sin, what sin is like, how it lives, how it grows, but hopefully what we're finding is how it can die. And the goal behind this series is really simple, yet I think potentially life-changing. What we want to do is hold these stories up as a mirror to help us see ourselves better, to, to help us see how the faces of sin are manifesting themselves in our lives, how we can overcome those things, how we can grow, how we can change to be the way God desires us to be. So today, we're holding up the mirror of a man named Naaman. So what I want to do here at the beginning is just go ahead and read you his story from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. That's, I know a lot of verses to read on the front end. I did toy around with, maybe just won't read it all and I'll just, you know, look at it individually. But I really think that seeing the big story is going to be helpful to you as we begin to dive into the details. You'll have a background for what we're talking about. So let me read you the story, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is just another name for Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. So the prophet answered, 
As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, then please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Now, that's 19 verses, but on the surface, I think this is a pretty straightforward tale about a sick man who was healed by God. But like most of the healing stories found in the Bible, there's a whole lot more going on under the surface. This is not ultimately about a man being healed of a physical sickness called leprosy. It's really about someone being healed of a spiritual sickness called sin. And to understand the, the nature of that sickness and the nature and power of the cure, what I want to do is divide this story into three different profiles or descriptions of different characters, and that's going to kind of serve as our roadmap for the teaching this morning. So first, we're going to look at the profile of a sick great man. Secondly, we'll look at the profile of a healthy young child, and then we'll end our time together by talking about the profile of the healer. So let's begin with that first profile, that of a sick great man. Listen to verse 1 with me one more time. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So the first descriptive word that we read about Naaman is that he was a great man. And not only was he the commander of the armies of Syria, a great man in ability and achievement, we have also very good reason to believe that for his culture and for his time, he was also a decent man, a great man in morals and relationships. You, you may have caught on to this as we were reading, but later as the story goes, we're going to see Naaman's very own slaves call him not master, but father. And they show this very genuine yearning for his well-being. So he seems to be a decent man. By all accounts, Naaman is a great man in every sense of the word. But Naaman is also a sick man. The end of verse 1 tells us he had leprosy. He had a skin disease. But like I mentioned just a second ago, this, this leprosy really isn't, he thinks it is at the moment, it really isn't his real problem. It is just the surface level catalyst that's going to help him uncover his deeper and much more destructive disease. Now, the story does not tell us explicitly what that disease is, but I think it becomes pretty clear as you continue reading and you begin to see these symptoms pop up in Naaman's life, symptoms not of leprosy, but of something else going on underneath the surface. So what I want to do just for the next few minutes is walk you through these symptoms, and what we're going to do is build this profile of this great man and pinpoint the real sickness that's ravaging his soul. So symptom number one that we see here is that Naaman knows better. In verses 2 through 3, we meet this other very important character in the story, this little slave girl who served Naaman's wife. We're going to talk a lot more about her in just a couple minutes. But for now, let me just draw your attention to what she tells Naaman's wife, who then relays it to her husband. In verse 3, she said to her mistress, "'If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria,' that's in Israel, "'he would cure him.'" Of his leprosy. Now, what's shocking about that, to Naaman's credit, 
is that he actually listens to the little girl, which is probably a testament both to his good character and his desperation. But as we keep reading, what we're going to find is that maybe he didn't listen as well as we thought he listened. Because, remember, the little girl told him there's a prophet in Israel, but Naaman doesn't go to see the prophet in Israel. He goes to see the king of Israel. And once he gets there, basically after the king just loses his mind and says, I can't heal you, you would think at that point Naaman would say to the king, well, yeah, I know you can't heal me. I was told there's a prophet here that can heal me. But Naaman doesn't say that. It's actually the prophet Elisha that has to call for Naaman to come to him. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Elisha says, have the man Naaman come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, Now, hold that phone for a second. Naaman... Naaman already should have known there was a prophet in Israel because the little girl told him. So either Naaman just didn't listen or what's more likely is that he just reinterpreted what she said to mean what he wanted it to mean. And you might say, well, why would he do that? Here's the answer, and you'll see this pattern repeat itself. Here's the answer that makes the most sense about Naaman. Naaman, here's the reason he reinterpreted and knew better. Naaman is a great man, and great men don't go knocking on the doors of prophets. They go to the palaces of kings. So even though Naaman got what will turn out to be really good advice for solving his problem, he acted like he really knew better than that. That's symptom number one, that Naaman's dealing with a sickness worse than and deeper than leprosy. Symptom number two, Naaman cannot handle being disrespected. Look at verses 9 through 11. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So Naaman is angry at Elisha and he tells us, at least part of the reason why he's angry in verse 11. He says, I thought that Elisha would surely come out to me. And in the original Hebrew, there's an emphasis on the to me part. Imagine for a moment, let's bring this to like the 21st century. Imagine that the president of the United States pulls outside your house and he's got his whole convoy of like secret service cars and military helicopters and you can hear like fighter jets scrambling. That's basically how Naaman arrives at Elisha's door. I think you and I would probably at least go out and speak to the president in person. Well, Elisha doesn't do that. He just sends a servant out to speak to Naaman. And so Naaman throws this tantrum, at least in part, because Elisha doesn't show him the respect he deserves as a great man. But that's just one part of the reason he's angry. He's also angry at the actual solution that Elisha offers him for his problem. And this brings us to symptom number three. Naaman, at least initially, rejects the actual solution to his problem. So the solution is pretty simple. Elisha says, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Naaman clearly doesn't like that cure because in verse 12, we're told that he turned and went off in a rage. He rejects, think about that, he rejects the very solution he's been journeying to find. And shockingly, kind of like what we saw earlier in the story with the little slave girl, what ultimately changes Naaman's mind and gets him to do what he should do is listening to the advice of his slaves. Listen to what they say to their master in verse 13. 
Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? You see, Naaman's servants recognize what's really going on in Naaman's heart. When they use that word there, great, if, you, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, that's the same Hebrew word from verse 1 that described Naaman himself. So, so here's the connection. Naaman is a great man. And therefore, he would have been perfectly happy to do a great thing to get his healing, a difficult thing to get his his healing. But the problem is, this is a simple thing, and a simple thing is beneath him. It's ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. It's a waste of my time and energy. I could have done this at home. It's humiliating. And now I think we can finally diagnose the root sickness of Naaman's heart. Because maybe you've caught on the one thing that all three of these symptoms of sin sickness have in common is the same thing that was so celebrated in verse 1 of this story, Naaman's greatness. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Naaman actually was great. He really had accomplished a lot. There is nothing inherently wrong with being great or recognizing greatness. What was wrong, what was ultimately had become this inner disease inside of his soul spreading outward was an obsession with his own greatness and the false belief that it was all his own doing. If you'll remember back in verse 1, we the reader are told why Naaman is so great. We're told that it was through the Lord that he had given victory to Aram. Through the Lord. The Lord is the one that made Naaman great. But Naaman, at least initially, right now in the story, he doesn't see that. He doesn't acknowledge that. So so underneath all of Naaman's very real greatness was this false belief that it was his own doing. And what that did is it manifested in his life as this dangerous and destructive feelings of self-sufficiency, superiority, and stubbornness. And this is why he knew better than the little slave girl It's why he couldn't handle being disrespected by Elisha, and it's why he rejected the simple solution. You, You might imagine that his inner dialogue was something like this. Just like I gained victory over the enemies of Syria, I will also gain victory over this sickness. I will figure this out. I will fix this problem because I am a great man who does great things. So maybe you're already starting to see yourself in Naaman's mirror. But just in case it's not clear, let me make it abundantly clear. This isn't just Naaman's condition. This is the human condition. His sickness is my sickness and your sickness. And the Bible makes this crystal clear all over its pages. The biggest problem we have as humans is not that we think too little of ourselves. That can be a problem. Our biggest problem is that we think too great of ourselves. If you'll remember, that's where the first sin originated. Pastor Ryan talked about this a few weeks ago when he talked about Adam and Eve. Think about Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed the command from God, it's not like there was a disconnect between them and God. Like maybe God didn't say that. He literally walked with them in the garden. They heard it from God himself. So when they disobeyed God's direct command, that was the height of hubris. They, they were saying with their actions, maybe not with their words, but with their actions, what they were saying was... I know better than God. God has disrespected me by keeping this fruit from me, and I reject his way to follow my own way. I am greater than God. And now that face of sin manifests itself in all of our lives because like Adam and Eve, we are all fallen humans. Now, at this point, I would anticipate 
an objection because this is an objection that I might make. You might say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I have low self-esteem. What I would say to that is, I joined that club a long time ago. That's probably where I am as well. But think about what low self-esteem really is. Low self-esteem is a fixation on your own self-image. It is an often crippling desire to be greater than you feel you actually are. So the proud man is obsessed with how great he thinks he is, and the man of low self-esteem is obsessed with how great he wishes he could be. But at the bottom of both of them is an obsession with our own greatness. Now, you may not be as obvious and as extreme as Naaman is here. And probably, I would imagine, you don't exhibit all of these symptoms at the same time. But I'm going to make a bold statement, and, and maybe there's exception to this rule, but, but I can almost guarantee that if you'll spend some time actually examining yourself for these symptoms, I bet at least one of them has popped up in your life recently, even if it's a lot more subtle than Naaman. So in an effort to practice what I preach, let me just share one specific area in my life where I have seen these symptoms rearing their ugly heads. Let me show you what it looks like to be a modern-day Naaman in Severn, Maryland in 2023. All right, this is probably going to be the most vulnerable I've ever gotten up on the stage. Well, Ryan always says this is a safe place. We are going to put that to the test. All right. Even though I'm probably going to embarrass them and embarrass myself, let me start out by saying I have uh, two fantastic sets of in-laws. They have helped me and my wife out immensely. Both of my parents are gone. They have helped us out immensely in our 12 years of marriage, especially for the sake of this illustration, especially financially. And I'm talking big things like they helped us buy a car after we totaled ours, gave us a place to live, and then all the way down to the small things. They'll sometimes give us extra cash to enjoy a vacation. They'll buy our restaurant meals. And none of that's because we go down on our knees begging. They just, out of the generous nature of their hearts, this is what they do for us. But here's where, here's the vulnerable part. I'm getting better at this. Let me put that out there first. But very often... When I receive that kind of help from them and from others, there's this, there's this tension inside of me. On one hand, when I receive that kind of help, I'm grateful and I'm happy. Who wouldn't be, right? But on the other hand, if I, if I can be super honest, I'm also a little offended and a little ashamed. Let me, let me let you into my inner dialogue. Here's how this goes. Do they think I can't take care of myself and my family? What do they think I am, a charity case? I'll pay them back. I'm not going to have them give me handouts. I will earn this. And listen, it's taken me, it's taken me a really long time to understand that, that those kind of attitudes are probably shaped a whole lot by my childhood experiences of growing up relatively poor and watching people mooch off of my parents and grandparents. But regardless of how much those things really did shape me, at the bottom of it, there is this obsession with my own greatness that feeds these feelings of self-sufficiency, superiority, and stubbornness. Think about what I'm saying. I'm saying I am a man. I work hard to earn my keep. I'm not like those moochers. I'm better than them, and I need nobody's help. And you know what that so often looks like to everybody else around me? It looks like me being grumpy and ungrateful and proud. Now, Some of you are taking a note now. Anthony doesn't like to receive money. Put your pens down. I said I'm getting better at it. 
And your generous contributions will go a long way to helping me find healing. <laughs> I did not know this was going to happen today, but at, at 1030 in between the two services, one of the small groups got us together as pastors because apparently it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, they, <laughs> they gave us gifts. And like, I, we kind of guess, second guess, should we give this to you or not? Answer, yes, you should. Um, <laughs> all right. Seriously, though, uh, this, is, this is my self-defense mechanism. Share something vulnerable, make fun of yourself. All right, what, what I just described, nobody needs to be on a therapist's couch to recognize that what I just described, those are not the traits of a spiritually and emotionally healthy person. They are the traits of a spiritually and emotionally sick person. And to some degree, all of us have that sickness inside of us. Maybe you can resonate with what I just shared. Maybe it manifests in your life in some other way. Regardless, all of that brings up the next Logical question. If that's what sickness looks like, what does health look like? And that brings us to our second profile, the profile of a healthy young child. Now, I realize that you might read that and be a little confused about how that fits in. I mean, we, we're telling a story about a grown man who is healed. So why are we now transitioning to talking about a young child? And to explain that, I want to take a closer look at how Naaman's healing is actually described in verse 14. So let's read this again. Verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And listen to what happens. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now that last phrase, read in a vacuum, is kind of weird. Why is the author comparing Naaman's skin to that of a young boy? Because, here's the answer, in the original Hebrew, that phrase young boy is the male form of the same Hebrew phrase that we heard back in verse 2 for young girl. Literally, one of them is na'ar katon and the other one is na'ara katona. You can hear the similarities. These things would have been read out loud originally. So those original readers immediately would have had their minds drawn back to the young slave girl at the beginning of the story. So what this verse is really saying is that this great man, Naaman, has now become like the little child who started him on this journey. And just like we saw three symptoms in Naaman's life that helped us see and understand true spiritual sickness, what we're going to see now are three signs in this young girl's life that will help us see and understand true spiritual and emotional health. So just for the next couple minutes, let me bullet point these for you very quickly. Sign number one of true spiritual and emotional health is sacrificial generosity. I want you to listen again to the description of the young girl in verse 2. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Now, what that means is that tragically, as was common practice in the entire ancient world, this young girl was kidnapped from her house and from her family in Israel by the same army that Naaman commanded and then made to serve as a slave in Naaman's household. So think about that. When, when this little slave girl hears that her master is suffering with leprosy, I would imagine her response to be something like, I hope that old buzzard gets what's coming to him, right? I hope he suffers as much as he's made me suffer. And yet in verse 3, here's what she actually says. And I don't want you to just listen to the words. Listen to the way it's worded, the, the tone that she has in verse 3. If only my master 
would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him. Now think about that for a second. That information was the one thing Naaman needed, right? This, this knowledge of the healer in Israel was the only wealth that this little girl had. And she could have just kept that wealth of information to herself and sat back and watched him suffer. Or she could have used that wealth of information as a bargaining chip to get something that would benefit herself. But what she does instead is she sacrifices any opportunity for gain for herself, and she offers this gift of information freely and passionately to a man who doesn't deserve it. She cared so much for him. She so much wanted to see him not suffer that she was sacrificially generous towards him. After Naaman is healed, we see a similar generosity in him. So remember, Elisha had insulted Naaman by not coming to meet him personally. And then Elisha had sent Naaman away to the Jordan River, which was a journey of 20 to 30 miles back in the direction he'd just come. So after Naaman was healed, it would have made perfect sense for Naaman to just go on home. He was already closer to home, and that prophet back there had been a jerk to me. So that would have made more sense. But look at what Naaman did instead after he was healed in verse 15. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. So Naaman and his entire convoy, they turn around away from home, and they go backwards so they can offer Elisha not a payment but a gift. Naaman sacrificed his offended pride. He sacrificed getting back home to his family sooner so he could go back and show generosity to Elisha. That is a sign that this man has been healed of more than just leprosy. That's sign number one, sacrificial generosity. Sign number two that we see in this little girl of true spiritual health is sincere faith. Listen again to what the little girl told Naaman's wife. If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. She didn't say he might. I hope he would cure him of his leprosy. He would cure him. She is absolutely confident that the prophet of God can heal Naaman, which for an an ancient Israelite is really the, the equivalent of saying God can heal Naaman because God works through his prophets. After all the trauma and all the tragedy, unimaginable that this little girl had been through, she still has sincere faith in her God. Now listen again to what Naaman says after his healing. Back to verse 15. Naaman says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman was not an Israelite. Naaman was a Syrian. His nation and his people worshipped a false god named Ramon. And yet now here's Naaman saying there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Not Ramon, but Yahweh is the true God. That is an amazing expression of faith from a man who five minutes ago was a pagan. And we see how sincere he is in verse 18. In verse 18, we get this kind of weird exchange between Naaman and Elisha. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain what's going on here. So Naaman looks to Elisha and says, but may the Lord forgive your servant. That's Naaman talking about himself. May the Lord forgive me for this one thing. Naaman says, when my master, so he's talking about the king of Syria, when my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, 
When I name and bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that I am the king of Syria, the king of Aram's right-hand man. That's my job. And I know when I go back, my job's going to require me to accompany him to the temple of Ramon. And, and what Naaman is doing is he's basically asking Elisha, would you please pray for me to Yahweh? Please pray that Yahweh would forgive me for this. Please know that when I go into that temple, I'm doing it because I have to, not because I want to. I'm not really worshiping Ramon. I'm worshiping Yahweh. Please pray that Yahweh would forgive me. Now, it's easy to read that from a 21st century perspective and, and, and just give Naaman a hard time. Like, come on, Naaman, you should quit your job. You should stand up to the king. Tell him you're not going to do that anymore. And, and, and looking at this from a New Testament Christian perspective, maybe there's some merit to that. That's another conversation for another day. What I want you to see is Elisha hears this and simply tells Naaman, go in peace. Don't worry about it, Naaman. The point is, this plea from Naaman is not meant to make us question the sincerity of his faith. It's actually meant to confirm the sincerity of his faith. Naaman now so sincerely believes in the one true God, Yahweh, that it bothers him. It, it bothers his conscience to even appear to be worshiping another God. That's evidence of a profound change and healing in Naaman's life, a sincere faith. But sign number three maybe the most important one that encapsulates them all, sign number three of true spiritual health that we see in the little girl is genuine humility. So the most obvious difference, of course, between Naaman and the young slave girl is that she's a servant and he's a great leader. But as we saw just a second ago, she's not just a servant in name only, like I have to do this. She served Naaman even when she didn't have to, even when it might have been to her benefit not to. She served him by genuinely looking out for his well-being. That's genuine humility. Again, we see that, that similar genuine humility in the newly healed Naaman. Maybe you caught on to this, but in verses 15 through 18, after Naaman returns to Elisha to offer him that gift... Naaman calls himself Elisha's servant five times. Five times he says, I'm your servant now. Remember, this is the same great commander of the Syrian army that was enraged that this little prophet had insulted him. And now this great man has become, by his own admission, the servant of this nobody. And this really gets to the heart of the actual healing that Naaman needed. In the first part of the teaching, we saw that Naaman's real disease was an obsession with his own greatness that led to destructive feelings of self-sufficiency, superiority, and stubbornness. Well, think about it. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is not necessarily casting aside your greatness. The opposite is having an understanding of your greatness that puts it in its proper place and understand where it really comes from. What do we call that? Humility. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis described humility like this. He says, God would rather us think ourselves a great architect or a great poet or a great fill-in-the-blank, doctor, lawyer, mechanic, whatever you are. He would rather us think ourselves a great thing and then forget about it than that we should spend much time and pains trying to think ourselves a bad one. In other words, true humility is not pretending you're bad at something that you're really good at. Naaman was still a great man, but he just wasn't obsessed with his greatness anymore. 
And God used leprosy to show him just how small his definition of greatness really was. All of a sudden, Naaman couldn't impress his way out of this disease. He couldn't buy his way out of it. He couldn't make all the right connections and network with the right people. Only God's power could heal him. And once he encountered this God, he was finally able to look outside himself and recognize the greatness in others and in God. And that's what I mean when I say that this great man became like a little child. And if you and I want to find true health, we have to become exactly the same. That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 4, Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus obviously means that humility is the true standard of what it means to be great. That's the definition of it. But it's also a fact that humility is a key ingredient to doing actually great things, to doing things that are bigger than and longer lasting than yourself. Humility is the key ingredient to that. Let me explain what I mean. In 2001, a man named Jim Collins wrote what would quickly become a best-selling classic on management and leadership. Maybe you've read it or heard of it. It was called Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. And in the book, he and his research team, they they survey over 1,400 companies, and they found only 11, 11 out of 1,400 that met these very strict requirements for having moved from being a good company to a great company. And one thing that he found in these 11 companies, one thing he found that all of them had in common, all 11 of them. They didn't go looking for this. This is just what they observed. They all had what they call level five leadership. They made up this term to try to encapsulate what it was. What does that mean? What is level five leadership? Let me tell you how they define it. These leaders of these great companies consistently built, here's the quote, they consistently built enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. And he went on to describe these executives like this. He said, in contrast to the very eye-centric style of the comparison leaders, they actually looked at other companies that weren't so great, and they found that those leaders were very, very focused on themselves. He said, in contrast to them, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. And it wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about these leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, etc. The point of saying all that is it's clear now from both inside and outside the Bible, in order to be a truly great person and do truly great things, we have to become humble like a child. That is real health. The question then, of course, is how do we do that? How do we get there? That brings us to our final, and this is the shortest profile, the profile of the healer. So now we've, we've seen Naaman sick, and we've seen Naaman healed, and the difference is profound, almost like two different people. And the question we're answering is, how did Naaman find that healing? The obvious, the short answer is, God did it. God is the healer. When we look at the profile of the healer, we're looking at the profile of the God who healed him. And, and Naaman himself, we've already seen this, Naaman himself acknowledged that very clearly. But let me, let me press this question a little bit deeper. How exactly did God 
heal him? And the answer I want to offer to that is this, God healed him freely. Remember, you might remember this back in verse 5, Naaman, when he went on his journey, he had loaded himself up with like thousands of shekels of gold and silver and clothing, and he tried to give Elisha this great gift. He really tried to press it on him, and Elisha refused the gift. I want you to listen now to how Professor of Old Testament Dale Ralph Davis explains why Elisha rejected that gift. Here's the answer. Elisha rejected Naaman's gift to impress on Naaman that Yahweh is a God of grace. One does not bribe, manipulate, or cajole Yahweh like pagans do their gods. Yahweh doesn't forever have his hand out looking for a payoff. Yahweh is simply a gifty God. God healed Naaman of his sin sickness, and he heals us not because we are great or we've done something great, but because he is great in mercy, grace, and love. But again, let me, let me press this further just one more time. So, so Naaman was healed by this God who graciously and freely healed him. Now the question is, well, how exactly did Naaman come to the place where he encountered this God of grace to find healing? And I have to admit here on the front end that I don't like the answer I'm about to give you. I wish I had a better answer than this because it's going to sound like I'm talking in circles for just a second. But really, if you just hang in there with me, really, this is the answer that I see in the text. I'm not making this answer up because I think it's cool. This is the answer I see in the story. So just follow me for a second. Here's the answer. How did Naaman actually come to the place where he encountered this God of grace? In order to encounter the God of grace that healed him of his obsession with greatness and made him a person of profound humility, Naaman first had to exercise profound humility. Let me restate that and make it more personal. In order to become a person of profound humility, you first have to exercise profound humility. It's a circle. So think about this for a second. Think, think about the series of events that led Naaman to his healing encounter with God. This great man had to listen to his slaves not once, but twice. He had to leave the king's palace, drive over to a podunk house in Samaria, and knock on the door of a peasant prophet. He had to swallow his pride after being insulted and obey a command from someone he didn't even meet to do something he didn't even understand. He had to get back in his chariot, travel miles back in the direction he just came to take a bath in the river of a competitor nation, and he had to do it all without being allowed to do something great to earn it or pay for it. All of those acts of profound humility are what led Naaman to have an encounter with the true God, and that encounter is what healed him and changed him into a man of profound humility. And the same goes for us. If we want to be healed of destructive feelings of self-sufficiency and superiority and stubbornness, we have to not only recognize that those feelings are present in our lives, we also have to recognize we can't heal ourselves of those feelings. We have to recognize that our deepest problems are inside of us, but our only hope of healing is outside of us. And then, it's not enough to just recognize those things, and then what we have to do is we have to take steps, often humbling and painful, and against every fiber of our proud being, we have to take steps to put ourselves into position to actually receive that healing. And you say, well, what does that actually look like, Anthony? It might mean... It might mean seeking and listening to the advice of others, even though 
you think you're smarter than them and you know better than they do. It might mean confessing something painful or shameful to a trusted friend. It might mean you have to accept and submit to what God's doing in your life, even though, like Naaman, you imagined it going another way. Naaman said, I thought surely he would come out and wave his hand. I didn't think this was the way it was going to go. And it might mean that you need to choose to obey God in an area of your life, even if it doesn't make sense. But as hard as those things are, the greatest act of humility that God calls us to, not just once, but every Day. The, the act of humility underneath all those, empowering all those, is hearing and believing the gospel. Because the gospel says this. Here's what the gospel is. It says no matter how many talents you have, things you've achieved, resources you've amassed, knowledge you've gained, good works you've done, you are not great. Not like you think you are. You were made by a great God for a great purpose with great value, but you've fallen. You are a sinner. But this same great God loves you so much, He's done everything necessary for you to be forgiven, healed, and transformed. What you have to do is trust Him completely with your entire life. That's what faith in Christ and the gospel is. It is a profound humility that says, I can do nothing to save myself, so I trust all of me completely to you. How in the world can we turn ourselves over to God like that? And the answer is by understanding that this God first turned himself over to us. And I'm going to let the worship team go ahead and come up as I read to you this description of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Here's what we're told about Jesus. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave to him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus Christ was greater than Naaman could have ever hoped to be. Jesus had equality with God himself. He shared God's infinite glory and power and wealth, but Jesus didn't hold on to any of those things. He made himself nothing. This, this great God humbled himself by literally becoming a young child. And even as he grew into manhood, he continued to humble himself, even to the point of dying one of the most humiliating deaths possible, crucifixion. Why did he do that? To pay for our sins, to heal us of our deepest sickness. And like that young slave girl, in his great generosity, Jesus sacrificed himself for our well-being, even though we were his enemies and we didn't deserve it. And it was because of that radical act of humility, therefore, that God exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every name. Through the lowest humility, Jesus accomplished the greatest achievement. And so the question is, what in the world does that mean for you and I? Here's what it means. Like Elisha's command to Naaman. Jesus isn't calling us to do something great. He already did it. He's calling us to do something simple, 
to humble ourselves and trust him and him alone. And yet, this simple thing is consistently the most difficult thing for our self-sufficient hearts to do. So where can we find the courage and the will to do it? By looking to Jesus, the one who had the courage and the will to humble himself for us. We do it by following the example of a man named John Newton. Pastor Ryan quoted him last week. He's the former slave ship captain turned pastor, famous for writing the lyrics of Amazing Grace. At age 82, on his deathbed, John Newton whispered to a friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton was dying but that's what it sounds like to be a healthy, great man. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, you made us for true greatness. I think about the Psalms in Psalm chapter 8 where David himself says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over all of creation. We really were made for a greatness that, that just could blow our minds, and yet we settle like small children offered a, a cruise at sea. We settle for making mud pies in the dirt. That's what we think is great. God, forgive us for such a low view of greatness and help us to see that true greatness is humility. Help us to see Jesus Christ as the standard of true greatness, but not just the standard, the one who makes it possible for us. He paved the way. Help us, like our Savior Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves underneath you and say with conviction, I can't do this, but I know that you can, and I offer myself completely to you. Help us to see the feelings of self-sufficiency and superiority and stubbornness in our hearts, and help us to find our way to you. Even if it's painful, even if it takes a lot of humility, help us to find our way to you by the Spirit of Christ to get healing for those things that we might truly become great like you designed us to be. We ask all this in the great and humble name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.